So, um, yeah, as I said, my name's Dave. Uh, if you don't know me, it's, uh, it'd be great to talk to you at some point after the service. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here at the church. Um, and this morning, I've been asked um, to speak in this uh, series we've been looking at, which is about um, things that Jesus never said. As Steve pointed out last week, there are plenty of things that Jesus never said, i.e. I'll get on the number 59 bus or... I'll have a skinny latte, I think was Steve's example last week. But this is actually stuff that perhaps we might think Jesus said, but he didn't. Or perhaps they're things that we think the Bible tells us, but it doesn't necessarily. Or perhaps the things that we just think are sort of implicit in being a Christian, and perhaps they're not. And so this morning's um, uh, talk is about uh, this thought, that Jesus never said, if you're a good person, good things will happen to you. If you're a good person, good things will happen to you. Um, And as I read it, um, my first thought was, well, that's a a really easy one. I know what I think about that. I'm I'm not quite sure how I'll string that out into 20 minutes, honestly. Um, But the more I thought about it, the more actually I think, the more you delve into that question, the more you get into some of the, I think, some of the core bits of the Christian faith, some of the core understandings of who God is and how God interacts with us and his creation. And the more I thought about it, actually, the more difficult it got. And so, just a bit of a health warning as I start. Some of the things that I've been thinking about as I was putting this together are really just my, um, hopefully not too random thoughts about the issue. Um, But not necessarily I've got an answer um, to these questions. Some of these things I'm going to talk about, actually, I'm not entirely sure I know the answer, but hopefully they're just some things to get us thinking about this topic. Um, So, if you disagree with anything I say this morning, my name's Steve Chalk. Um, (laughs) um, Steve actually wrote a book, um, wrote a book uh, called He Never Said. Um, it looks like it was written somewhere in the mid-1950s by the look of the cover. Um, and it covers lots of the uh, topics we've been talking about. And he tells this story at the beginning of this chapter. Um, and there are plenty of stories like this, but this is an example. Um, it's a story about El Salvador in the 1980s. Um, El Salvador was in the midst of a, a civil war at the time. Um, Steve in the book says that the Americans called it a low-level insurgency um, in El Salvador. Um, And there were these two American nuns that had gone to work in uh, San Salvador, the capital city, um, and they were looking after the the poor and they were looking after people who were the victims of this awful conflict that was going on. There were armed militias in the street. The military police were carrying out brutal executions of people. It just wasn't a good time in El Salvador. And there were the two um, American nuns, who Catholic nuns, who went to work uh, with the, the poor people of the city of San, San Salvador. Um, in the, the stories in 1980, and a couple of months before this story, actually, the Archbishop of San Salvador, um, a guy called Oscar Romero, um, was executed. Um, so this was a conflict that was actually, you know, uh, doing terrible stuff to people. He was feasibly executed by the military police in the country. Now, these two nuns um, set off one evening to the airport to collect another couple of Americans that had come to work with them, and they set off in their white Toyota Jeep to the airport. Um, And a couple of hours went by, and the the leader of the the Catholic mission that they were staying at was expecting them back, um, and they didn't arrive back at home. And so some more minutes went by and hours turned into a couple of hours and it became much more worrying where these two women, they were called Jean and Dorothy, had gone and where where they disappeared to. And so Paul, the guy who led the Catholic mission, set off 
up the highway towards the airport to try and find them. Um, and Paul found the pretty grisly sight of their a white Toyota Jeep sitting on the side of the road, completely burned out. And so got out of the car to investigate um, and walked just a little way up the road to find a shallow grave where all four of these nuns had been brutally executed and ditched in a shallow grave. Um, that prompted all sorts of things to happen. It prompted the Americans to put trade embargoes on San Salvador. It prompted the government in El Salvador to suggest that these women were communist sympathizers and all, all sorts of terrible things went on. And the reason Steve tells this story at the beginning of this chapter is to point out the fact that these were good people. These were people there doing um, the work of God. They were there to care for uh, the poor in San Salvador, and good things didn't happen to them. Now, that's one story I'm sure you can think of loads of stories yourself, um, both in the news, probably personal stories, of where you know that good things don't necessarily happen to good people. I know in, in my life there's uh, family, friends that I've known that have been good people and have died young of terrible diseases. I know when I worked in India, there were a particular little, little boy I can think of who was a good person and died a pretty horrible death of AIDS. We've seen just in the news in the last week um, a Catholic vicar in France brutally executed. His friends talk about him as a good person. And I, I think these sorts of stories, and like I said, there are just hundreds and thousands of them, aren't there? And I bet you can name stories yourself. Cause me, cause us, I guess, to think a bit about why do these things happen? What is God playing at? What is the nature of God? How does he interact with us? Um, Steve, you might have heard this story before, tells this story often um, about a particular time in history when um, philosophers and theologians took pause to think those very same questions. Um, in the 1700s, in 1755, there was a huge earthquake in Lisbon, in Portugal. And it was on a, a Catholic feast day, and so the people of Lisbon were all in churches, all celebrating this Catholic feast. And at the point where they were in church, there was a huge, devastating earthquake that caused all the churches to collapse on them, and many thousands of Catholics were um, killed in this terrible earthquake. Um, this earthquake caused philosophers and theologians to really take pause, to think, why has God done this? Did God do this at all? Why has this happened to good people, people who were trying to follow Jesus? Why has this happened to them in particular? Some people would have said it, God did it because he was angry with them. Other people began to think other thoughts. And so I guess my first point really is, in answer to that question, do, do good things always happen to good people? For me, the answer is patently no, that's not the case. We live in a broken world and good things happen to us and sometimes terrible things happen to us. And I guess I go on then to think, well, actually, I'm not sure the Bible tells us any different to that. I think the New Testament is a story of pointing that out to us and telling us how to deal with that, actually. Um, just a couple of quotes here from Jesus in the New Testament. When people are asking if they can follow Jesus in the New Testament, he gives some pretty clear warnings. So people ask if they can follow him, and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus says to them, are you sure you want to do this? Do you really want to go where I'm going to go? Are you able to drink the cup? that I'm about to drink. He says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Now, that foxes and birds of the air bit, um, the foxes bit, he, he used to refer to um, Herod, who was the um, leader in Galilee as the cunning fox. And so foxes have holes probably refers to Herod. The birds of the air bit of that little passage, um, actually sometimes some terminology used to talk about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Um, and so in this passage, Jesus is saying, if you want power like the cunning foxes, go for that. If you want power like the Gentiles that feather their nests, go for that. But if you follow me, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you follow me, I'm the powerless Son of Man. I think he gives some pretty clear warnings to people that actually follow this road and it doesn't necessarily end in a happy, good place. I think the ultimate, um, and which is why Kessewa read that reading, demonstration of this is the cross, isn't it? Um, and you, we've probably all looked at that reading before, but Jesus, the ultimate nice guy, the ultimate good person, his life ends in a pretty brutal execution on the cross. I think the story of the New Testament is not saying to us, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. But I think it's really funny because I think, I, you know, I've noticed I've done this in my life, I guess we probably all have, but slipped into a, when bad things happen, why has this happened to me? I've tried to be a good person. Like, why, why has this stuff happened to me? And I'm not sure the New Testament actually tells us that that is the way it works. So I go on from there, really, to just ask some questions then about, so if there are tragic, terrible things that happen to us, like what is God's role in that? How does God interact with us? How does he interact with his creation? And I guess the first thing you could say, I'm not sure I do, but this is a possibility, you could say, well, God is just in control of everything. Everything is God's will. We might not fully understand it, but it is God's will. I, I remember going to a, a church in India run by a guy called Pastor, he had the most hilarious name, he's called Pastor Thank God, which is like after eating curry for every meal, Pastor Thank God was um, an often uh, helpful refrain, but um, Pastor Thank God was, um, he was a, a Nigerian pastor, um, and he talked to us about um, the fact that everything was part of God's perfect plan. And so it was a, a terminology used a lot. Everything was part of God's perfect plan. And so good things would happen, and that was part of God's perfect plan. And bad things would happen. So children would die young. I remember a particular child in our congregation dying young. And we didn't understand it, but it was part of God's perfect plan. And relationships would break down, and it was part of God's perfect plan. And we were worshipping in a, a building that was across the road from a slum community and nobody ever said this but I guess the the logic goes it's all part of God's perfect plan and so we just talked a lot about the fact that we might not necessarily understand it um, but it was part of God's perfect plan and we just had to trust that it was important in the mix of it now I personally found that really difficult to live with because that meant God was in control of some pretty tricky things God was in control of young people dying early God was in control of murder in that case. God was in control of the fact that people in the city I lived in, half of them lived in slum communities. Now, that could be the answer. That is a possibility, I guess, but one that I found and do find difficult to live with. I guess the other option is that if God isn't fully in control, then if God, if we think, you know, that's not an option, then God isn't fully in control. And there are some different ways you could think about that. Um, Tony Campolo wrote this fantastic blog post that is really short. So if you wanted to go and read it, it's called God the Suffering Servant. And Tony Campolo talks about the dynamic between love and power. Love and power. I'll just read you a little bit of it. 
So it's called God as the Suffering Servant. And it said, in any relationship, it's impossible to express love and power at the same time. Whoever is exercising the most power is expressing the least love. And whoever is expressing the most love is exercising the least power. In expressing love, a person must give up power. Hence, loving makes a person vulnerable. And then it goes on, it's a, a shortish article, but it goes on to say, Christians should have no difficulty in understanding this relationship between love and power. Because the New Testament theology has a God who, in order to express his love, chooses to give up his power. This is what we Christians believe the incarnation is all about. We believe that 2,000 years ago, the Almighty God set aside his power in order to express his love. We believe this is why the Messiah entered history, not as a conquering emperor, but as a defenseless baby in a manger. And then further down the article he says, when I say such things as this in sermons, congregations either silently to themselves or loud say amen. Yet they very seldom follow this through to its logical conclusion that they have a powerless God on their hands. That what goes on in the world is not totally under his control. Now, Tony goes on in that article to talk about a God that is anguished with us when terrible things happen, that cries with us. Talks about a God that deliberately limits his power and gives up his power in order to give us free will in order that he can love us, in order that we can love him, in order that we can love one another. And throughout this article, talks about the tension between power and being in control and love and what he thinks, where he thinks God sits in that balance. Um, I remember vividly when I was a small child, I can't quite remember how old, but um, I, my parents live in a place called Newton Abbott in Devon. It's a small market town, and I obviously used to live there with them. Um, and uh, I remember vividly one day um, being allowed to go into Newton Abbott, into the town centre on my own for the first time. Um, I was probably about 21 or something. <laughs> but, uh, but my parents allowed me to go into Newton Abbott for the first time. I don't know what I did. I probably went to Smith's or something excited like that. But um, I went into Newton Abbott for the first time, and I really vividly remember this experience that for the first time, my parents had like ultimate control over my life at that point. They could let me go or they could make me stay and I had virtually no choice in the matter. But because my parents loved me, they chose to limit some of their power and allow me to go off and explore the world, allow me to start understanding how to be a human being, understanding good and bad, understanding, start to exercise my free will. In order to love me, they actually limited some of their power and let me go off on my own, despite the risks. And I could have got lost, I could have got run over, I could have lost my money, there were risks attached to that. I guess if you follow that thought through, the fact that that power was limited and I now you know, have sort of my free will has led to good things happening to me and bad things happening to me in my life. I wonder if God interacts with us in that sort of way where in order to love us best, he limits some of his power, it's a possibility. And so you put together what Tony said in his article and, and that thought I had about my family and I sort of think, well, that all sort of makes sense. But then there's a big sort of but that comes with it. Um, and the big but, I was talking to Ezra, my housemate, about it yesterday, is that there are some terrible things that happen in our world, aren't there? So I think, you know, some emotive issues, so like the genocide in Rwanda or the Holocaust or murders or shootings in America or Islamic State at the moment. Some terrible things that happen in our universe am I really saying that God has the power to act but is choosing not to use it 
in those circumstances. God has the power to stop brutal executions happening, but is choosing not to use that power and limit it in order that people have their free will. I'm not sure. That genuinely is a question I don't know the answer to, but I think it's a big question. Has God got the power but is choosing not to use it? That's one option, I guess, and that could be a possibility. I guess the final option that I've thought through, and there might be others, is that God perhaps just doesn't have that type of power. Um, there's a, a type of theology, and it gets relatively controversial, I think, called process theology. Um, process theology says a whole load of stuff and is quite complicated, and I'm not saying I understand it inside out, but some of the basic principles of it are, one is that God changes, so that God interacts with humanity and with his creation, and God changes over time. God is in process. Um, that's quite a controversial thought, but the other thought is about God's power. And process theology says that um, God doesn't have that unilateral coercive power to be able to just stop things, make things happen. But God does have unlimited persuasive power and relational power with us. And God's power is about persuading us to be his agents in the world to bring about the kingdom of God. They talk about God not having that coercive unilateral power, but having unlimited persuasive power. And so I don't know really quite where I sit in all of that, but I do know two things. One, I think God definitely anguishes with us. I think the point of the incarnation and Jesus coming to be with us is that God is with us in the midst of good things and in bad things. Um, I think also that it strikes me that God probably does want to point out that first and foremost, love is the key to understanding who we are as human beings and understanding the universe around us. Power and control is not necessarily God's go-to thing, I don't think. I think first and foremost, he's talking about love. But the big point I really wanted to make is not necessarily any of that. I think um, it's quite clear to me that Christianity is not um, some insurance policy that stops us having any harm befall us. I don't think it's that. I also don't think Christianity is necessarily a get-well-quick scheme. And I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking it's that. A better metaphor, and perhaps not the fullest metaphor, but that I think about Christianity is that it's an invitation to join an active revolution. An active revolution, not an act, a revolution of violence or you know, that sort of a revolution. A revolution of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I say those words, and we talk about those words a lot at Oasis, and I think it's too easy to gloss over them. I think revolution is the right word. I think if we were to do that, life would look a very different place. If I were to do that, my life would look extremely different to the way it does. I think revolution is a critical word. I think we're being invited to join a revolution. I don't think Christianity is saying to us, do these things and life will work out nicely for you. Do these things and you will thrive and flourish. Do these things and you will be comfortable. I think Christianity is saying to us, do these things and you can change the world for other people. Be other-centred. Use these things to be other-centred for other people. There's a um, great quote, again, that was in Steve's book, which said, if Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Um, if Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence to prove that I was part of the revolution? Um, and I think the answer most days is no. This is a call to be part of an active, loving revolution. So I think the message is not do this and life will be comfortable. I think the message is do this and things may get tough. Um, and I also think I do this, and this might resonate with you, but I think 
I want to live a sacrificial, Jesus-centered life, but I want to do the sacrificial, Jesus-centered life without the sacrifice. Um, so I want to have the sacrificial life, but I also want a nice wage and lots of friends and to live in a nice house and have a nice family and enough food to eat. So I want to do sacrifice just without the sacrifice, please. Like the actual dictionary definition of sacrifice is giving up something valued for something greater. I don't think we can do sacrifice without the sacrifice piece. So in that case, I hope this has not been too negative, but if you come to the end of all of that and say, well, the message is do this and stuff might get tough, why bother? Um, but let me read you this quote from the lady who was murdered in um, El Salvador. She wrote this, I think, in the early 1980s. She said, several times I've decided to leave El Salvador. I almost could, except for the children, the poor bruised victims of this insanity. Who would care for them? Whose heart could be so staunch as to favour the reasonable thing in their sea of tears and helplessness? Not mine. And I can't quite describe this, I don't think, but for me, and perhaps for you as well, I don't know, but there's just something deep within me that knows that that sacrificial love is actually the point of the universe. So when Tony in his article is talking about Jesus wanting to demonstrate sacrificial powers love, to me that strikes a chord. When Tony's talking about this not being about power and control, that strikes a chord. And there's something deep within me that says that sacrificial love is the point, even if it leads to hard things. I think there's also a bit within me that sort of knows that power and control, although in the short term they might be helpful and might just get things done quick and might get the comfortable life I want, are actually pretty limited. They end at some point. That isn't the point. Sacrificial love is the point. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about following the life and model of Jesus. As I said earlier, and as we read in that reading that Kessler read to us, Jesus did those things. He, he lived a happy life, didn't he, as well? He went to parties, he had friends, he sat and had dinner with people, but he also had some lines, which were the bits he knew that he got to stand up for this message, even if it meant tough things would happen, and tough things did happen. And on the cross in that reading, we were talking about Jesus has been scorned for not using power to stop that situation happening to him. I think it is the model of Jesus that sacrificial love is the point of the universe. And so, in closing, um, I'd just say a couple of things. One is, do good things always happen to good people? Well, my answer to that is I don't think that's the way things work. And I think we've got to come to terms with that, and I think it's easy to say we've come to terms with that, but not so easy to actually have come to terms with that. When bad things happen to me, I do go into this, why me, I've tried to be a nice person mode. I think we've also got to, and this is a difficult thing, but build a theology and an understanding of God which is strong enough to cope with. We sang earlier about walking through the shadow of the valley of death, didn't we? That's strong enough to cope when the bad things happen. Um, Martin Luther King has got this great but really challenging quote that says, if a man hasn't discovered something he will die for, he isn't fit to live. If a man hasn't discovered something he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Um, and Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief, ex-chief rabbi in this country, um, agreed with that quote and said, I, I agree with that and I'd go further to say, once you discover what you're prepared to die for, you know what it is that you're prepared to live for too. Once it is you know what you're going to die for, prepared to die for, you know what it is you're prepared to live for too. And I sort of think that's the point. I think our job is to work out what are the things, what are our red lines, what are the things we're going to stand up for that even if we have to sacrifice stuff, we're still going to do it anyway. 
I think, to go back to where um, I talked about halfway through, I think we're being asked to join a loving revolution of those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Asked to join a revolution. And I think the message is, good stuff will happen, bad stuff will happen too. It could end in a tough place, but do it anyway. Join the revolution and do it anyway. I'll just read you this really famous um, poem from Mother Teresa. It was written on the wall of her cell, um, just as I close. It says, people are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find sincerity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. I'm going to stop there and hand back to Peter.